Today we're going to do a, we're going to begin our series in the Holy Spirit. And I was going to start with the question of who is the Holy Spirit? The problem is the Bible doesn't start with that question. <laughs> so, um, oftentimes we come to learn new things, not by, not so much by an introduction to the idea as to experiences. So let me give you an example. Um, when, when I was in math, the teacher would start by telling us, um, what we were going to talk about that day. And it would be something that, that's convoluted and you've got no idea what we're talking about at first. But then you'd hit that example. And when you hit that example, suddenly the, the, what you're trying to learn about starts to make sense. So we started talking about vectors. What's a vector? And you know, you give the definition and you start talking about some things and you're just like, I don't even know what we're talking about right now. But then, but then the teacher would say something like, think about wind. Wind has a direction that it moves and there's a certain amount of force to it. It, it moves at a certain speed. You have a 25 mile per hour wind out of the Northwest. That's what a vector is. It's something with speed or with direction and with force. Okay. There's a magnitude to it. There's a force to it. And there's a way that it's going. That's a vector. Oh, well, that makes a little more sense now. Okay. I can kind of get an idea, right? So there's something about the example, the real life example that, that cements things in our minds that otherwise, uh, who knows if they're there or not. Who knows exactly what we're talking about? I've got no idea. But if I can put a real world example on it, suddenly it makes sense. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament writers, I don't think are setting out to write about the Holy Spirit. They're not setting out to define him and describe him in all these myriad of ways. What they're looking to do is to identify the experiences of men like Moses or like David or like Joshua, men and women who live by the Holy Spirit, who the Spirit comes upon, who, who experience God's Spirit in particular ways. And they write those experiences. And so by looking at these real world experiences, by looking at these real people who lived and who really had the influence of the Holy Spirit, we can get a little bit of an idea of who we're talking about. But the Old Testament does that by starting with what he does and not so much who he is. So that's where we're going to begin. Tonight, we're going to look through the Old Testament. Some of these verses, there's a lot of scripture that we're going to cover tonight. And so on one hand, I want to say, I'm sorry if it feels like you're drinking water through a fire hose. Um, there's a lot to God, so it might feel that way. Um, but what I really want you to get is the basic ideas. I don't want you to memorize all these scriptures, though it would be great if, if we could memorize them all, right? But I want you to see how God is working. And I want you to see specifically the Holy Spirit in each one of them, okay? All right, there's... There's a few things that, that the Old Testament in particular really tells us about the Holy Spirit. And so I want to begin there. These things are true Old Testament and New Testament and even into today, okay? God is God, period. He doesn't change. And so this Holy Spirit is not some sort of impersonal force that has nothing to do with God the Father or God the Son. 
We'll talk a little bit uh, as we go along and, and a little bit later in the series, we'll talk about the Trinity itself and we'll talk about how the Spirit relates to the Son and the Father. We'll talk about all that. But for right now, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is God. It's not, it's not something that God has. It's God. Okay? So keep that in mind. For the Old Testament writers, the Holy Spirit um, does a few things in particular, especially. And one of those things is that it gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. We see this from the very first page of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 1, verse 1, there's the summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, like a chocolate bunny with nothing on the inside and no chocolate shell on the outside. Nothing. Okay? There's nothing there. There's, there's no outer form to fill anything with. There's nothing to put in an outer form. It's not like all this mass of gooiness or whatever. It, there's nothing. It's completely formless, completely void. Nothing there. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you keep reading in this, you'll hear God say things, and it suddenly happens. Well, I wonder how it happens. It's the Spirit of God. They're bringing life to pass. Not just human life, all life. Who is it that makes the grass grow upon the newly formed ground? It's the Spirit of God. Who is it that makes animals to fly in the air and swim in the seas and walk on the land? It's the Spirit of God. It gives life. The word for spirit was also used of breath, wind. The Spirit gives life. Job puts it this way in Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's playing with words there because spirit and breath are the same word. But he's saying, I get my life through God's Spirit. Psalm 104, 30. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. If you want something to happen, if you want something to come into existence, to be created, to be made alive, well, that happens through the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 32, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. See, up until this, it's been the judgment of God and the wrath of God poured out. But when God begins to pour out His Spirit, suddenly things change. And look at the rest of 15. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Now, how many people do you know that can plant in a wilderness and make it fruitful? Doesn't work that way, does it? The Holy Spirit can. Because the Holy Spirit gives life. And that fruitful field <laughs> is deemed a forest. Not only is it bearing fruit, it's thick. It's bearing tons of life. Ezekiel 37, we talked about this in our Ezekiel series. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Then I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The Holy Spirit gives life. If you want to know how it is, that God puts life into our flesh and bones. It's by His Spirit. 
Okay, that's the first thing we see in the Old Testament. Second thing is that the Holy Spirit makes us holy. Now, this makes sense, right? He is the Holy Spirit after all. And we'll talk a little bit as we go along about the holiness of God, in particular through his spirit. But notice that it's the Holy Spirit that makes us holy, that made the Old Testament saints holy. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah is recounting the works of God before his people. They have been, they are, they are there. They have built the wall. They are dedicating it. And in the service, they are reading the laws of God. And he is recounting for them the history of their ancestors. And he said, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. God gives his spirit to instruct them. Instruct them how? In the ways of holiness. We'll come back to this this verse in a minute. Look at Psalm 143.10. Teach me, the psalmist prays, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. He's begging God, with your spirit, show me the right way. Show me the way, Lord. Help me know righteousness. Ezekiel 36. And I, God's promising through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I wonder what spirit that is. That's his spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit making them holy because when God's spirit is in us, it drives us in the direction that God wants us to go. It's something that that leads us from within. You can discipline a child to a point to do what you want them to do. But it's when they learn to discipline themselves that it makes all the difference. Because when a child learns to discipline themselves, your role is no longer to discipline. Your role is now to help them make good decisions. There's a point in parenting where that transition occurs. God says, I'm not going to be this God that will discipline you all the time. I'm going to put my spirit in you so you have the self-control. And after all, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, I want you to be able to control yourself. So I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you will do what I want you to do. It's not just about you following what I'm telling you to do. It's about you having my spirit in you so that even if I don't tell you audibly, you have to do this. You'll know that's what I want. You ever know someone who's been living with God for years and years and years, and they just know when it's the right thing? You ever done that yourself? I mean, I've had times where there are, there are decisions, and I just knew God was leading this way and not that way. And there's nothing bad, per se, nothing that I can see wrong with either decision, nothing that I can tell the difference between, except there's just something about it that I just know this is the right thing to do. And so I do it. I went to a church one time um, before I came here and preached, and I could just hear God's Spirit say no. I don't know why. didn't seem like a bad church. I just know he said no. Paul does that. He's going to go into mass, or he's going to go into Asia and God just shuts the door. God just doesn't let him. He can't go. 
It's that night that he gets the Macedonian dream where the, where the man from Macedonia says, come help us. And so Paul and his, his fellow missionaries change direction because God's leading them a different way. That's what the Holy Spirit does within us to guide us in the ways. But a rejection of the Spirit will lead us to wickedness. Look in Isaiah 63.10. But this is, this is God showing his love to Israel, but they rebelled and grieved his Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Zechariah also makes the same point. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the prophet, former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. So you have the Holy Spirit as the one who gives life. He's also the one that makes us holy. Not only does he give us physical life, he gives us spiritual life, if you want to think about it that way. There's something else the Old Testament tells us, and that is that the Holy Spirit is God's presence. He is God. And so wherever he is, God is, right? And so it makes sense to think of the Holy Spirit in a way of he's the presence of God. This is one verse, one particular section of verses really came to mind when I thought about this, and that's Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and your, and, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. There's God's presence. Where am I going to go to get away from you? Nowhere. Now, part of that is comforting. I can never get in such a mess that I'm too far away from God. Part of that's a little disheartening, though, because even when I want to, I still can't. You know, one of the aspects of God that this points us to is what we call omnipresence. God is present everywhere. And this is one of those verses that shows us that. This is one of the few verses in the Old Testament that gives us a hint as to what the Holy Spirit is like, what his character is, who he is. He's omnipresent. We can't get away from him. We can't flee away from him. He's always there. Jonah was trying to run away from God. Turns out he is headed straight toward him. Kind of took a fishy detour for a few days, but he ended up right where God wanted him. God's presence, the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 39, 29 puts it this way. And I will not hide my face from them anymore. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, I'm not, I'm not shying away. I'm not hiding myself from them. It may have felt that way. Not anymore. I want them to see me. I want them to know I'm here. So I'm pouring out my spirit upon them. When God puts his spirit in us, we have God's indwelling presence day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. I don't want to get too far into the New Testament side of it, but I want you to see that even in the Old Testament is the, recommend, is the recognition that God's spirit is his presence. Haggai 2.5, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I'm here. I'm staying here. Don't be afraid. I tell you what, that, that, that's the kind of verse 
That's the kind of verse you memorize right there. What a reminder that God's presence is with us, not just in, in the bad times where we wish we could get away, but in those times where we desperately need Him, in those times where we need a God who is here, not a God who is there, not a God who is afar off, not a God who is long ways away, and maybe we could get a hold of Him if He happens to answer the phone. He's a God who is there, here, right here. He's a God who is closer than a brother who never leaves, who never forsakes. And His Spirit is the continual reminder of that truth. Without the Spirit of God, you might feel like God has abandoned you. But with His Spirit always there, you're constantly reminded that He is not changing, that He will not forsake. Malachi 2.15 Not only only in just in the way you live life, personally, but in the way you live life together with your spouse. The Spirit even dwells even within that union. Look at Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one, husband and wife, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So even in marriage, this beautiful bond between a husband and a wife where, where the man leaves, his mother and father cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. Even in that, God's Spirit is demonstrated to be present even there. When I got married, I was told, I think rightfully, by the minister that married us, um, that you know the purpose of your marriage is to bring people to Jesus. See, God ordains marriage as a way of demonstrating who He is. You have two people that are becoming ever closer, ever closer, ever better mirroring what it's like for God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be three in one, distinct yet of the same essence. We'll talk more about that later. But even in our marriage, the Spirit inhabits. That's one reason I think that Paul says don't be uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think what he's telling us is it's really hard for you to live the life in the Spirit when your spouse, the one you're supposed to be drawing closer to, isn't. Now, some some folks get away with it by bringing their spouse to Jesus. Those are incredible folks. There's a whole lot more incredible folks that don't. And you can tell that it's hard. I knew a woman whose husband was completely against the things of God. And I could see it in her face every time I talked to her. It was a constant burden. But when we do it right, when, when we're married with fellow believer, and both of us are pursuing God, He is building us together, husband and wife, into something that mirrors His glory. And it's the Holy Spirit working to make that happen. The Holy Spirit also gives the prophetic word. This is one of the most particularly important things in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, um, there are three parts. The biggest of the three parts are the prophets. Okay, So the Hebrews would divide up their Bible into three sections. Um, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings would be everything that didn't fit into the first two, to be honest with you. Most of it, there's a lot of poetry and that sort of stuff in it. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, uh, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, um, those kinds of, of books were in there. But the prophets held a particularly important place because they were the ones that told Israel what God says. In fact, Moses is considered a prophet. 
So when you look at them describing Moses, they describe him as the prophet of God. And there's a reason for that, because he was speaking God's message to the people. When God would appear on the mountain and the Israelites are terrified and they don't want to go up, they send Moses up and they're like, you go talk to him so we don't die. And he would come back and tell them what God said. He would come back down with the Ten Commandments. Of course, he'd break them as soon as he saw them worshiping a golden calf, have to go back up and get some more. But he would give them the words of God. So he was a prophet. And that that prophecy, it even goes back even further than him. If you look in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, uh, um, in Genesis 41, Pharaoh has this dream. He's troubled. He doesn't understand it. He's tried to figure out what his dream means. This is during the life of Joseph. And Joseph, if you'll remember in prison, he interprets two prisoners' dreams. One is going to lose his life. One is going to go back to serving the Pharaoh. That guy goes back to serving the Pharaoh, doesn't remember Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream that troubles him and nobody can interpret it. And finally, the guy's like, oh, of course. When I was in prison, I met this guy who could interpret dreams. He interpreted my dream and it came true. Pharaoh says, go get him. (laughs) Right? He's desperate. He wants an answer. They bring Joseph in. Pharaoh tells him the dream. Joseph gives the interpretation. And this is how Pharaoh responds. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, how did he know God's Spirit was in Joseph? Because of the prophecy. Because of being able to tell the dream of Pharaoh, he realized this ain't just an ordinary guy. There's something special about him. And he recognizes it is a Spirit of God. Now, I don't know how much Pharaoh knew about God. But he makes a very important theological point. Joseph does not interpret dreams without the Holy Spirit leading him. By the way, uh, we, we, don't, we don't do much of anything worthwhile without God leading us either, do we? Numbers. Moses is in trouble. He is, he is burdened. These people are a burden to him. And he just can't do it anymore. They are whining and crying about not having meat. God's given them manna, but it ain't good enough because they've had the same thing over and over and over again. How would you like to eat the same meal every day for 40 years? Anybody want to sign up? I don't care if it comes from God. (laughs) I want something different every now and then. The Israelites are complaining to Moses and Moses complains to God and he says, if this is the way you're going to treat me, why don't you just kill me? (laughs) Ever been there? Ever been that despondent where you just said to God, just just end it all. I can't take this anymore. Maybe not, but maybe you kind of know how he feels. God says, go to the tent of meeting. I'll talk to you there. In fact, bring 70 elders with you. And I'm going to take my spirit. I'm going to put the spirit that I've put on you. I'm going to take some of it and put it on them so they can share the burden with you. It's too much to do on your own. So that's what Moses does. He calls the 70 elders Numbers eleven twenty five. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him. Notice that spirit there is capitalized because the spirit that was on Moses was God's spirit. Took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And what happens when he does this? As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. They immediately start declaring the words of God. 
But they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp. One named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. So even though they weren't even in the tent of meeting, God's put His Spirit on them too. And watch what they do. Hmm, I wonder. Let's see. Oh yeah, they prophesied. (laughs) They were among those registered but had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Or um, probably a little more accurately, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Because tattletale. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. He's worried. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know that God is is doing this on purpose. He doesn't realize. He thinks that they are going to try to overtake Moses. And he knows Moses is a faithful servant of God. Don't let them do this to you. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Verse 29. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So you have the Holy Spirit causing people to prophesy. You have God's spirit indwelling in people long enough So they begin declaring his words. This isn't the only place this happens. Numbers chapter 24. Balaam is hired to prophesy against Israel. But, verse 2, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and he saw Israel camping tribe by tribe and the Spirit of God came upon him. And you know what he does? He pronounces blessings on Israel and cursings on the guy that he's supposed to be blessed supposed to be cursing them for. In Second Chronicles, the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Now, that's not a very good prophecy, but it's a prophecy nonetheless. He's speaking the words of God. And notice, did you notice, uh, there's kind of a play on words here. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Zechariah. Have you ever heard a clergyman called a man of the cloth? Part of the reason is because the priests had to wear certain garments. And when they wore those garments, um, they were considered consecrated to God. They had to consecrate themselves before they even put the clothes on. And so he's saying the Spirit of God clothes this man the son of the one who is already consecrated and clothed by God. And he calls Israel out for their sin. Nehemiah 9, we talked about verse 20. A few verses later in verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. In other words, You've tried to tell them through your prophets by your spirit. God speaks his words through his spirit, by his spirit, through the prophets. There's a sense in which that continues today through preachers. Preachers who listen to God and who preach the word of God. But it's not just limited to the pulpit. Anytime you give someone a word that God has told you to give, you are a prophet. And if you're worried, well, I'm a woman, I shouldn't be a prophet. There were prophetesses too. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to be just male to prophesy. Isaiah uh, 59, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What he's saying is I'm building a people such that you will always speak my words. And how are they going to do that? By his spirit. It's the spirit that gives the prophetic word. Probably the best one, Joel 2. You know this one. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Men, women, boys, girls, servants, free, doesn't matter. And what are they going to do? Come on. What are they going to do? They're going to prophesy. What else do you do when God puts his spirit on you? Really, what else What else can you do when God puts his spirit on you but speak what he says? I mean, the Holy Spirit even does that. Jesus tells his disciples, oh, John 15 or 16, I can't remember which one. He tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will bear witness of him. The Spirit itself bears witness about God about his son specifically. So if the Spirit of God is declaring the son, shouldn't the people on whom the Spirit of God rests be declaring the son? It's a no-brainer. God's Spirit put on his people results in them prophesying. Micah 3.8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with his justice and might to declare his transgression and to Israel his sin. It may not be a popular message, but it's God's message, and I'm filled with the Spirit to preach it. Zechariah 7.12, I said we'd come back to it. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the prophets. That's how God speaks. God's spirit flowing through his prophets. Even if you don't have the title prophet, he can still speak through you. The last thing is more of a, it's kind of a hodgepodge. I I put it this way, the Holy Spirit enables service. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's not really a prophecy kind of thing. It's not really, um, well, it's, it's God's spirit coming upon a person for a specific task or function or job. Sometimes God puts his spirit on someone to accomplish something in particular. And it's not always a prophecy. It oftentimes revolves around leadership. But sometimes it can just be skill. We've read about this. Uh, Exodus chapter 31, God is telling Moses how all this temple and everything's going to be built. He says, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to put my spirit on somebody. And I have filled him. He's talking about uh, Bezalel and later about his assistant, Aholiab. He says, I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship so that he can do all the metalwork and all the woodwork and all of the 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 fine linen work and everything that needs to be done. I've given him my spirit so that he has all of the tools and abilities he needs to get the job done. And not only that, I've given him an assistant too. Not only that, I'm leading the people by my spirit in their spirits so that they will help, so that they will do the work, so that they will come along and donate. And I mean, all everything that has to be done in order to make sure this project gets done. My spirit 
is going to be the one to make sure it happens. Just like it was hovering over the waters, bringing God's words to life. He's hovering over the temple mount, bringing his temple to life. And he does it by indwelling people. Number 17, we talked about this passage before. Um, What God says he's going to do is that he's going to take his spirit, a little bit of his spirit from Moses and put it on these 70 elders. Specifically, look in the middle of the verse, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. It's specifically for tasks. It's not just taking my spirit from you and putting it on them so that they'll just prophesy. They stopped prophesying. They prophesied and then they stopped. They said what they needed to say and then they shut up. Boy, don't don't you wish everybody would learn that lesson. But their job wasn't done. Their job, the reason they got the spirit was to bear the burden. And so that's what that's what they did. Number 17, 20, or 17, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. Lay your hand on him. He's transferring leadership. He's saying, Joshua, when I'm gone, you're going to lead this people. You're going to lead them in the promised land and in the conquest. And God has already put his spirit on that young man to accomplish that task. In Judges, it says it so many times, I'm just going to give you two of them. One is to Gideon, Judges 6.34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. There it is again, that clothing. And he sounded the trumpet. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't say that God gave him his spirit to devise the plan, to figure out the troops that he needed, to make all the arrangements. It's not until it's time to blow the trumpet that the spirit comes on Gideon. Almost as if God has to say, all right, We've got everything ready now. And then I, I forget how big the the army was that they conquered. Um, they only had, what, 300 men, I think, conquering an army of thousands. It's by God's spirit. Judges 14, not only on good judges, but on the ones that really make some questionable life choices. This is Samson. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. <laughs> Even the ones that, that don't really make the best life choices, the ones who are too worried about themselves and how great they are and too blinded by their own strength to realize their weakness, God still puts his spirit on them to accomplish specific tasks. You know, I thank God that that he put his spirit on me because, I'll be honest with you, I I couldn't do half of what I do without him. And the spirit of God, this is, let's skip ahead a little bit to Samuel. The spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. uh, Saul finds out some, some, a defeat that has, that the Israelite army has just faced at the hand of the Philistines. And as soon as he hears it, God's spirit rushes on him. He gathers up an army and goes and whips some Philistine tail. God's got a specific task for him to do. And so the spirit rushes upon Saul so that Saul does it. First Samuel 16, God has rejected Saul as king. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse at God's, at God's command and is ready to find the next king. 
And he looks through Jesse's sons, and he's looking at the tallest one. This one's, this one's, I mean, this one's mighty. He's strong. It's not him. The next one's handsome. He's got that political leader kind of look. That's not him. The next one, no, not him. Next, goes to all of Jesse's sons and says, do you have any more sons, Jesse? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt. He's out keeping the sheep. Surely, surely you don't want (laughs) to deal with him. They call him. They bring him in. Samuel says, surely not. God says, surely rise and anoint. First Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went up to Ramah. God had a task for him. From that day to the day that he took the throne after Saul's death would be about seven years. That doesn't matter to God. He's, he's put his spirit on David for a purpose. Even, well, Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel looking at a broken down temple wondering, man, we'll never be able to rebuild this. God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Even the Messiah is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, I wonder how verses 3 through 5 happen. Could it be maybe the Spirit of the Lord resting on him in verse 2? Yes. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, grace, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. The way that the Messiah was to work is through the Spirit of God empowering Him to do His works. And if it's true of the Messiah, that he needs the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the works that God has sent him to do, how much more true is it of us? I tell you what, that Holy Spirit's pretty busy. Enabling service in all kinds of different ways. Leadership, killing a lion, bringing things to life, making us holy, giving the prophetic word. Holy Spirit does a lot. When we talk next week, we're going to look at the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we'll talk a little bit more about what he's like. But I think we already kind of have a sense, don't we? We already have a feel for what the Holy Spirit's like. We're going to look at the New Testament. There's some interesting developments that happen. He's not going to change. God isn't a different God. Some people use, some people have taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. That's not true. But as we see more of him, 
we'll get a little bit better picture of who he is. I think right now we've had enough to to sit and think about, huh? Again, I know that's a lot of verses. It's like drinking through a fire hose. You should try studying all those verses. But I know that through this study, we'll get a better sense of who God is and hopefully be better led by the Spirit. So I pray that I pray that he moves in your heart the way he's been moving in mine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we say, first of all, we realize that without your Spirit, we don't even have this Bible. We don't have your words. It's, it's your spirit that gives us the ability to read, to learn, to pray, to grow in you, to know you. God, thank you for your spirit. Lord, may we not quench him. May we not stop him in his work. May we not get in the way and cause a barrier. But may we both obediently and prayerfully submit to your spirit's will and, will and your guidance. Thank you for who you are, even if it'll never, we'll never quite understand you. Thank you for what you've done, even though we can never fully recount all of your works. Thank you for who you're making us, even if it's tough to get there. Lead us by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.